thank you for this opportunity to be together. I pray, Lord, that you would reveal in your word a little bit more about who you are. We'll be careful to give you praise and glory and honor in all things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We are going to dig into John chapter 5, but I want you to turn to John chapter 16 first. Uh, because there's a principle that we're going to get into here in John chapter 5 that we need to understand in order to grasp a hold of the reason why Jesus talks the way he talks. Um, I call it Jesus speak. I learned that from my pastor. Um, but why did he talk in submissive language? Why did he talk in as the son to a father, father to a son. Um, what was he trying to get across? Um, and, and sometimes we fail to realize that Jesus is talking in what is called veiled speech. Uh, that is speech that ends up having to be revealed. So for instance, when Jesus asked the disciples, whom do men say that I, the son of man am? And some said Jeremiah, some said Isaiah, others said one of the prophets. And Simon Peter said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus said, That is well said, but you didn't come up with it. It was revealed to you by the, the Father. And, and so there is something that happens, and when people don't grab a hold of what we've been teaching in the book of John, a lot of times it's because they don't recognize how Jesus was speaking in that veiled language. And uh, so in John chapter 16, he lets us know uh, what, why he's saying these things. Um, and let me read verse 25 to you. Uh, there's a whole lot else going on here, but this is the principle that I need to pull out because remember the whole purpose of the book of John is to reveal who Jesus is. And we're getting now in chapter five, we're gonna be getting into some things that Jesus talks in order for us to understand by revelation and not by absolutes, okay? So verse 25 says this, These things have I spoken unto you in Proverbs or parables, but the time cometh when I shall no more speak unto you in Proverbs, but I shall show you plainly of the Father. And uh, what John is saying here in chapter 16 is, or Jesus is saying in, in John chapter 16 is, I spoke to you in ways that was veiled, that was not totally plain. And there's a reason why he does this. Uh, he does this because if we remember, we talked a couple weeks ago, I think, what the main sin in the Garden of Eden was, and really before the Garden of Eden, the, the thing that Lucifer did was he elevated himself to be God. He said, I'm going to be above God. And when Adam and Eve uh, committed their sin in the garden, it was based off of a conversation that she had when the serpent asked her, did he really mean, he doesn't want you to eat that because he, he knows that you're going to be like God. You're going to know right from wrong, et cetera, et cetera. And so she grasped after that concept. Okay. So if the foundation of sin is grasping after deity, Okay, if that's, if that's the foundation of all sins, and you think about it, all of the sins of the world, murders, 
lying, cheating, stealing, all of the sins that are listed in the Bible, all of those are man or woman taking upon themselves the role of ultimate authority, right? And so the basic foundation of sin is found in the fact that somebody's trying to be like God. That means that Jesus came to be the antithesis of that. As a man, Jesus wanted to do everything that went totally against what the foundation of sin was so that we would be freed from it. Okay, so as a man, uh, while we're here, before we get into chapter 5, turn over to Philippians 2. I've referenced this a couple of times. We should probably just read it um, together here just to be safe. Philippians chapter 2. I've mentioned this before. This is considered a kenosis text, okay, or a kenosis passage. And the word kenosis simply means self-emptying, okay? Now, for those people that think that Jesus was just one-third of God, he was just God the Son, what they'll take in Philippians chapter 2, they'll say that the emptying here is Jesus in heaven saying, okay, I'm going to step out of heaven, I'm giving all that up, and I'm going to earth, okay? But if you look here, um, that doesn't line up with what Paul admonishes us to do, okay? So this is Philippians chapter 2. Look at verse number five. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Okay, let me just stop there just for a second. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. What was he really saying to us? Think like Jesus, act like Jesus, behave like Jesus, become like Jesus, right? Okay. Why would, why would Paul tell us if that if that's the foundation of sin, is to become like God? Okay, we don't want to become like God. We're not chasing after becoming like God. We want to come by his humanity or the man, God manifest in the flesh. I want to be like Jesus. And, and Jesus as a man, in his humanity, he gave up some of the, the parameters, if you will. In verse six, he was being in the form of God, well, how are you in the form of God? Okay, John 1, 1, God became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. At the incarnation, we use that term all the time, the incarnation, deity takes on humanity. So as one being of deity and humanity, Jesus is in the form of God, okay? He was equal, he was God manifest in the flesh. In the beginning was the word, the word is with God, the word was God, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. But he made himself of no reputation. In other words, as a man, he, Jesus from the time that he was born could have claimed, I am God, I'm going to zap you, I'm going to judge you, I'm going to do whatever I want to do because I'm God. He had every right to do it because he was God. But he knew that human, humanity and the enemy of humanity, Satan himself, that's what they grasp after. And that's what our sin does, is it causes us to, as, as individuals, claim really to be God. We don't use those terminologies, but if you cheat, you're trying to take control of the situation. If you murder, you're taking control of the situation. If you lie, you're taking, you're in control, okay? And so in this passage, he made himself with no reputation. He took upon him the form of a servant, was made in the likeness of men. So as a man, Jesus became like you and me. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, which is the opposite of what Adam and Eve did, 
and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And because of the humility of his humanity, deity is able to elevate him. In other words, Jesus became our perfection. He eliminated or answered for the original sin of man, which was trying to become like God. Okay, so when he's talking, uh, and we can go back to John 5 now, when he's talking, he's talking in such a way to fulfill that role of submission, to fill that role of humbleness, to fulfill that role of humility in order to create a pathway for you and I to be able to dwell with deity. Because remember in the last few weeks we've said flesh can't dwell with deity. It would consume us. The only way we can be in the presence of Almighty God is because he became a man for us and he, he died on a cross for us and rose again. That's the only way that we can be in his presence. And, and so um, we're getting here into chapter five, not right here at the beginning, but we're gonna get into this conversation, this father-son communication or, or conversation. And this is why I said several weeks ago that when you read father, you read deity or originator. And when you read son, it's begotten or it's something that is created, it's humanity, it's his human side of things, okay? And here's the way that I, I look at it is, well, how can, how can they be son and father at the same time? Well, I am. Okay? I'm a father to own, I'm a son to Frank, and I have my own spirit. And it's, I'm not three different people in one. Okay? I know that's a crude example, but that's really, you know, the argument that says, well, how can he be both God and man, and how can he, he he's, he's fulfilling, he's becoming, um, how many have ever watched the show Undercover Boss? Well, everybody has just about. That show doesn't understand that it's really a proponent of the gospel without realizing what they're actually doing. Okay? Because really, Undercover Boss is, I, I mean, it's a crude example, but it's really the gospel. It's the boss, the CEO, the owner, whatever, what does he do? He disguises himself as a normal worker and he'll go into all the different fields of his business and he'll work and he won't tell anybody who he is and he'll talk to them like the owner, but he's not the owner at the time. And so he's talking to him like a, a fellow employee, okay? When Jesus walked on earth, he was talking to people like fellow employees, even though he was, rep even though he was the boss. Okay, and then at the end of the show, what happens? He reveals himself to the people that were that he had been working with as the owner, as the CEO, and there's this moment between the two of them that it is totally crazy, and usually the boss gives them all kinds of things, and, and their lives are changed forever. Well, that's really the principle of what's happening in the gospel. God realizes, because he created everything, when sin entered into the world, there was a break. There was a breaking between deity and humanity. He couldn't commune with us, and so the only way that he could do it was to become like us, interact with us, fellowship with us, feel like us. See, God couldn't feel what we felt because He wasn't human until He became a human. And we read that in Hebrews chapter four. He was tempted in all points, like as we are. 
He, he felt all of the infirmities. He, he understood what a headache was. He understood what uh, a hurt feeling was. He understood what rejection was. He, would, he, you know, he understood all of that. So he was dwelling on our level. And then he comes back to reveal himself really as the boss. Does that make sense? And, and so he uses, so we're entering into a season of the scripture where he's in that undercover kind of mode veiled speech, that talking of, uh, of parables and proverbs that he mentions in John chapter 26. He says, but there's coming a day when I'm going to show you plainly. Okay? And I'll tell you that that hasn't happened yet. Okay? Philippians 2, we stopped before we got to verse 9. But verse 9 says, for at the name of Jesus, every knee is going to bow, every tongue is going to confess that he is the Lord. Okay? That has not happened yet. But it's going to happen, and that's when he's going to show himself plainly. Every knee is going to bow, every tongue is going to confess. The Bible even goes further to say, of things in heaven, of things in earth, and things under the earth, it's all going to bow before him. Everybody's going to bow before him when he reveals himself plainly as to who he is. So those of us that are blessed to have the revelation of the mighty God in Christ Jesus, Colossians 2.9, those of us that have come to an understanding that the great God of creation became a man so that you and I could have communion and dwell with him, we get that based off of revelation and not because he has totally revealed himself plainly yet. Okay? That's why we can't get frustrated with people that don't see it yet. Because they're still looking at the proverb of it. They're still looking at the parable of it. It's the reason why our prayer needs to be, Lord, reveal yourself to them. Okay, so now we'll get into chapter five, and the first part here is kind of straightforward, but we're going to um, take more of the application of it here in just a moment. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is at Jerusalem by the sheep market a pool, which is called the Hebrew tongue Bethesda, having five porches. In these lay a great multitude of impotent folk, or blind, halt, withered, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain season into the pool and troubled the water. And whosoever then first, after the troubling of the water, stepped in, was made whole of whatsoever disease he had. And a certain man was there which had an infirmity thirty-eight years. When Jesus saw him lie and knew that he had been now a long time in that case, he saith unto him, Will thou be made whole? The impotent man answered him, Sir, I have no man when the water is troubled to put me into the pool. But while I am coming, another steppeth down before me. Jesus saith unto him, Rise, take up thy bed, and walk. And immediately the man was made whole, and took up his bed, and walked. And on the same day was the Sabbath. Now there's three feasts in uh, Israel that were considered feasts of obligation where everybody had to go, every adult male Jew had to go to Jerusalem or um, to their hometown, one or the other. And the Passover, the Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles. And this passage here probably uh, is assumed to be around the Feast of uh, Pentecost, which is 50 days after Passover. And uh, Jesus enters Jerusalem and he goes to this pool of Bethsaida, uh, which means house of mercy, and this pool uh, is deep, okay? You can dive into it, is what the word means. 
And uh, beneath the pool, there was a stream that every now and then would the trouble the waters of a trouble. And they uh, believed that an angel was troubling the waters. And when that water took place, uh, when, when the water was troubled, if you got there first, you got your healing. And uh, and here here Jesus comes and he sees this man. And uh, there's some things here that I want to pull out of this because it will lead into the second part of this passage. The first thing is, is notice what Jesus does in verse number six. He asks him, do you want to be healed or do you want to be cured? Okay, there is, there are some people that don't want their healing or their deliverance or to come out of what they're in because they haven't gotten to the point yet of their desperation. They think they can still control their sickness. They think they can still operate in it. They can, and so Jesus doesn't just heal people to heal people. He heals people that he knows has a desire to be healed. And he's asking this gentleman, do you want to be made whole? And the reason why he's doing it is because he's, he's revealing to those that are around him that uh, oftentimes, uh, the release of the glory of God or the healing of God, the deliverance of God will not come until you voice it to him or, or you ask him about it or you bring it to him. And sometimes it's even if you don't know him, but that is the opportunity that you have to, to show it to him. And, and, and really, the, so the first essential here in your notes under A, towards receiving the power of Jesus is to have a desire for it. The one thing that sets us apart from all creation, whether it be the animal kingdom, the plant kingdom, the climate kingdom, whatever it is, the thing that sets us apart is that we're created in his image. And in his image is the concept has become the theological term of free will. Okay, of free will, which is a powerful thing. And the reason why the Lord gave us free will is because he has free will. Okay? He can do whatever he wants to do. He can say yes or no or maybe whatever he wants to do. He can create anything he wants to whenever he wants to do it. He's all powerful. And he put that in us because that was going to be the one thing that differentiates us from everything else and that he is looking for because he did not want to create beings that would commune with him because they were made to commune with him. He already had them. They're called angels. Okay? He already had beings that were created for the sole purpose. It's the reason why Lucifer doesn't stand a chance because Lucifer was designed for one purpose and he broke that purpose. He didn't have a choice one way or the other. Okay, and he broke it, and, and so we have the opportunity to either to choose him or not to choose him. Okay, you had your hand up. Yeah, I just started just brought into my mind because uh, Lucifer or Satan was an angel. Correct. So, but it does say that he lives here on earth. So is he married to Jesus? Was no, he was not. He he, he manifests himself. As the as the so child of life. Person no. That's going to be Satan here on earth. Like, 
I, yes, I know what you're saying. No, I don't believe so. I believe that Satan uses because Satan is an angel. Now, angels can manifest themselves as human beings. Uh, they do all through the the Bible, you know. Um, and <clears throat> the Bible tells us in Hebrews to make sure that we're uh, hospitable towards any visitors unless we entertain angels unaware. So the concept of an angel can manifest himself as a person, but they're not really a person. It's, it's still a spiritual being that's manifesting itself as a person. Um, here's, what, here's what Lucifer is. Lucifer is a fallen angel that has a bunch of fallen angels. According to scripture, if you read it a certain way, one third of the angels uh, were cast out with him. And, uh, but what he is a master of is he is a master of messing with people's minds, okay? And because of that, he has created, created is not the right word, um, but he has used the concept of, of, of a spirit. See, we give, we give him so much credit, too much credit, for the different quote-unquote spirits that are in the world. A lot of the spirits that we claim to be are in the world are really our own making. Because we, we start thinking a certain way, we start developing an attitude a certain way, and then when we get in trouble, we're saying, well, it's a spirit that's attacking. Well, no, we just thought wrong, okay? Um, I, don't, I don't say that to say that he's not real and that his, his influence isn't there. The Bible says he's the prince and the power of the air. Um, but there's coming a day where he's going to go into a bottomless pit for a thousand years, and then he's going to go into a lake of fire forever. Um, he's already a defeated foe. Um, it's one of the reasons why there is really no... We say that the lifelong battle has been between God and the devil. That's never been a battle. It's already won. It's already over. The devil can't stand up to, you know, it's... The battle has forever been between the devil and us. That's been the battle for us since, since Adam and Eve. Okay, And what ends up happening in that battle is you and I have a choice. Are we going to fight this battle on our own or are we going to fight this battle with him? You see, when we're, when we're not being conquerors, we're not fighting with him. We're fighting on our own. And when we're made more than conquerors, it's not because we've done anything except allow him to come in and help us. You see, and so what ends up happening is there's this misnomer that Satan is really this powerful being. Satan is not very powerful. Okay? The evil spirits are not that powerful. Now, I have seen people that have been possessed of spirits. And, and they control that person until the Lord casts that, that devil out. You can read that in, in. But even in Mark chapter 5, with the man from Gadara who had a legion of angels or demons in him, which a legion is anywhere from 2,000 to 6,000 demons in this man, that man still overpowered those demons to get to the feet of Jesus. Okay? And when he got to the feet of Jesus, then Jesus took care of it. So, so even, but we get this idea, see, we are people that like to pass the blame. Because we don't want to confront ourselves and say, the junk that I'm dealing with is my own stupidity and my own decision making and my own thought process 
And I've looked at it this way instead of turning it over to the Lord. And you see what I'm saying? And what ends up happening is, is we're giving credit to the enemy when the enemy really didn't do anything. He just, he just listened and maybe reinforced what we were saying to ourselves. Um, he understands how to play the game of manipulation better than anybody. But in order to be a manipulative person, you have to, a manipulative person has no power over the person being manipulated unless the person being manipulated lets them manipulate them. It's a lot of manipulation there. <laughs> but that's really the truth. And when you think about it, and we've all fallen for it for at one time or another in our lives, but it's, it's more up to, and, and part of the reason I think that humans struggle with it is because they haven't gotten close enough to Jesus and they haven't fulfilled uh, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not to your understanding, but in all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will direct your path. Okay? So, the desire for this man, Jesus asks the question, are you going to be made whole? And the man doesn't recognize what Jesus is asking. And he's basically blaming his circumstance. Well, there's nobody here to put me into the water. Which a rational person will say, well, then why aren't you sitting on the edge? <laughs> so that all you have to do is fall over. <laughs> you know, but because in the, the mindset of even this man after 38 years of being impotent and not being able to do things on his own, he got into a habit of making somebody had to get them him to the pool every day and take him home every night because he didn't live there he didn't sleep there all the time okay he didn't dwell there at all times so somebody was lifting him and carrying him at those times why not put him right next to the pool so he could just fall over if he had to and what Jesus was trying to reveal in this whole situation was I'm getting ready to do something that is outside the bounds of the legalities of the Pharisaical religious group. Something's getting ready to happen. And we're going to see it here in just a minute. And so the infant man says, there's nobody to, to put me in there. And Jesus looks at him and says, rise, take up that bed and walk. Now, again, John is writing this 70 years after this happens. Okay? And so we're, we get just the bullet points. Okay, and the Bible says immediately the man was made whole. When he first said, "Rise, take up thy bed and walk," I don't know, but I think the man probably looked at Jesus like, "How rude!" You know, thirty-eight years I've been sitting here, I've been waiting for somebody else to come and lift me up, and now you're telling me to get up on my own. Okay, and so I think some of the things that Jesus is revealing here is again. Jesus is going to take us to the point to where we respond to what Jesus is doing without just doing it on his own. Basically, he has asked this man, do you want to be healed? And the man makes an excuse for why he's not. And so Jesus just says, well, get up. And the Bible says he immediately was made whole. That doesn't mean that he jumped up right away. He had to, you know, if you haven't felt your legs in 38 years and all of a sudden you're feeling your toes, 
I can't see him just quickly jumping up. There had to be some test. I understand he was immediately made whole. In that moment, Jesus made him whole. And, and just shortly thereafter, he was up walking and, and, and doing things on his own and taking up his bed and walking. But he was doing, but just common sense tells you that as a human being, just because Jesus said it doesn't mean that the man received it right away. I can just see him kind of sitting there and, oh, that feels different. And then he says, he's getting, you see what I'm saying? And, and so what ends up, we, we get the highlights of it. So all of a sudden, we get all of this happening, and this man gets up and picks up his bed and, and, and walks. It's almost, it lets us know that sometimes Jesus is waiting for us to respond to him in order for the miracle to take place. You see, we get to this place where even when we'll come to church, God, I need a miracle. Just let the miracle happen. And he's like, I've already spoken the miracle. When are you going to take hold of it? When are you going to get up, so to speak? When are you going to make up your mind that I've already touched you? When are you going to receive what I've already done? See, there's a lot of people, I've known people my entire life where God has blessed them, moved upon them, and they're right back to the same place they were three days later because they never grabbed a hold of the reins that God was giving them, and then they blame God for not doing it. Okay? Now, I'm not saying that we can just consciously say, okay, I'm going to do this and it becomes a habit. But God has miracles that are there and waiting for us. It's just that we shy away from it. Okay? And let me just give you some examples. There's sometimes in the context even of a Sunday service where the presence of God is moving so strongly. And I have had to pray with people and almost in a non-spiritual way, I'll whisper into their ears, I'll say, You've got to just fight for this. It's going to feel like you did 100 sit-ups, but it's going to be worth it. Because they get to a certain level, and then because people are quieting behind them or around them, they feel like they've got to get quiet. And I'm like, no, you've got to get a hold of this. And you've got to push yourself a little bit further. And you've got to fight for it a little bit more. And uh, it's amazing to me when they do that, all of a sudden something breaks in, breaks in them. And... Uh, when that thing breaks in them, you can just see the power of God come over them. And they have now stepped into a new territory in the spirit that they did not, which is a miracle in and of itself. There's some people that are waiting for the miraculous healing of God to happen like that, and sometimes it does. Sometimes somebody can lay hands on them and the, the broken bone is straightened out and healed and, and all that stuff. And then sometimes it doesn't happen like that and people walk away feeling guilty because they don't understand the concept of a miracle. A miracle doesn't always happen just boom like that. Or it happens and makes somebody whole, but like, like this man, I can't, he had to figure out 38 years of not walking to just jump up. I can see him kind of struggling, getting his feet under him and, 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 and being a little bit shaky and, and realizing this is new. <laughs> this is incredible. And then when it hits him and he starts trying it out a little bit, then he starts worshiping and jumping and leaping and doing all kinds of things. Does that make sense? Okay. And so uh, Jesus is, in effect, telling the man to do something impossible. He said, has God ever told you to do something that you thought was impossible? And maybe it was impossible on your own, but if you would just take that leap, 
He's already got the floor set for you. He's already got your landing zone if you would just take the leap. But we, I think of Gideon back in the Old Testament when he starts out and first of all, he's fearful and God finally talks him into doing it and then he takes half of his army when it takes more people away and now he's left to something small that's impossible to do and yet somewhere along the line Gideon says, okay, God, I'm just going to jump. I'm just going to do it. And the impossible becomes possible. And sometimes I think we as humans so tend to shy away from the impossible because in our eyes it is impossible and we haven't trusted God to jump when he said jump. It's sometimes very difficult because change is uncomfortable. The unknown is uncomfortable. But you'll never know the unknown until you get to the unknown and you'll never get to the unknown unless you're willing to get into the unknown. And uh, that, that sometimes is, is a little bit scary. And uh, there's some there's some valid hindrances of going deeper in God. Number one, sometimes we have to overcome our teaching, what we've been taught. Okay, um, I shared with you the journey that my wife and I have been on with Scripture and how God has transformed and revealed new things to us over the last 15 or so years, 20 years, and, and opened up a whole new, but in order for me to come to the conclusion of what the Word of God was saying, I had to fight back trying to prove my point to God. But God, this is the way I was raised. God, this is what your words, well, wait, your word doesn't really say that. <laughs> and I had to come to the, to the point of conclusion that says, God, you can change my mind when the time is right because I want to know ultimately everything that you have for me. Okay? That's not a very comfortable area to walk. It's not, it, the unknown is not comfortable. So we, we have to overcome sometimes our former teaching. Sometimes our former teaching is because we loved the person that was teaching us so much, but yet when we realized they weren't teaching us really what was right, and then we start thinking something different. It's almost like we're betraying our teacher. Okay? It's uncomfortable, but it's, it's in the unknown. It's also a little scary, or a lot scary, to stand in an area on your own. You know, it's easy to morph into what everybody else is teaching, what everybody else is thinking, falling into... You know, it's one of the reasons why in uh, America, especially, denominationalism is so rampant. Uh, because if you think about it, every denomination has started on a disagreement. Every single one. Okay? You go back to the very beginning, a disagreement between people, whether it be a doctrinal disagreement, a lifestyle disagreement, a method style of a disagreement, whatever the disagreement was, it was, okay, I'm gonna go group with this people, and I'm gonna go group with this people, and then these would separate, and all of a sudden, all of the denominations at one time held very close to all the same views until there was a disagreement. Even back when Martin Luther tacked his 95 thesis on the wall, okay? That was the start of what we would call Lutheranism, which was a break off of Orthodox Catholicism, another denomination. 
and then there's another denomination. Okay, you see what I'm saying? And the reason is, is because it's easier to have a pack mentality than it is to be out on your own and stand for what Christ has spoken into you. And it's it's the reason why I believe the number one weakness of the Christian today is this. They don't have enough confidence in their relationship with God. They don't have enough confidence in their relationship with God. Okay? Does that mean that I know everything? No. But I'm also not going to follow everything unless I can find it here. And if I get something new from out here and I can't find it in here, I have to just leave it out there. But if I get it from out here and I can see it in Scripture and the Lord starts revealing it to me, I better grab a hold of what's coming out of, really it's coming out of here, but I heard it out here. Does that make sense? And, and so it's very important that I become confident in my relationship with him and what he says to me in here. And it's one of the reasons why I like teaching this kind of a class because we are, you know, we've been doing this since January. It's now the beginning of April and we're at chapter five. And we've missed two, two nights. But we've dug deep, you know, and uh, I, I, I pray that by the time we're done with the book of John, the confidence level rises in your understanding of what John was trying to get across. And uh, so that's kind of doing the impossible, stepping out of the, into that which is unknown. So in verses 10 through 18, now is kind of the recap of what just happened. Um, before I get there, that last phrase of verse 9, and on the same day was the Sabbath. This is, this is a transition line to the next verses because Jesus is getting ready to get in trouble with the religious leaders because of the Sabbath. Verse 10, the Jews therefore said unto him that was cured, it is the Sabbath day, it is not lawful for thee to carry thy bed. Now think of that. This is how distorted religious leaders had become. That the man that had not walked in 38 years, they were more concerned with the fact that he lifted his bed up on the Sabbath than the fact that he was healed of walking after 38 years. Yeah. Yeah, there's all kinds of. They got around the Sabbath all the time the way they wanted to, but they used it as an argument. And uh, the man answered him, He that made me whole, the same said unto me, Take up thy bed and walk. And they asked him, What man is that which said unto thee, Take up thy bed and walk? Um, now, the reason why they asked him, I think, is because they're wanting to charge him. They're, they're not wanting to pat him on the back and thank him for the healing. Which, can I just tell you that that still happens really today? There are, there are religious people that don't believe that miracles happen today. And I'm like, that's because you don't know what a miracle is. I said, take a breath. <laughs> that's a miracle. They just don't recognize it. And so... Not necessarily a Sabbath deal, but they don't believe that miracles are for today. And miracles stopped back in biblical days, and there's really no such thing as miracles today. And uh, and so, 
they get this troubled look about them. That's what these Pharisees were doing, or these people that, the Jews that were there. And he that was healed uh, didn't know who it was, for Jesus had conveyed himself away, a multitude being in that place. And afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said unto him, Behold, thou art made whole, sin no more, lest a worse thing come unto thee. The man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus which had made him whole. And therefore did the Jews persecute Jesus and sought to slay him because he had done these things on the Sabbath day. King James. Oh, <laughs> which one are you in? Okay. Yeah, it is a little different. Um, so you look here and you're, you're seeing... They're getting ready to kill Jesus because he performed a miracle on the Sabbath day. Okay? Now, take the principles out of that. Not the principles. Take the, the particulars out of that and look at this principle. The reason why they didn't accept the miracle is because they were still living in the law. And they were still living in the law because they didn't recognize John chapter 1 when John said that grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. So we get on to the Pharisees. Now, it doesn't make sense to me that they didn't rejoice over a miracle and they wanted to kill the one that created the miracle. But at the same time, we penalize them because we're looking back in time and we're seeing everything that we think, oh, they should have known that. Okay, They didn't know who Jesus was yet. So they didn't know that grace was available. They didn't know that mercy was available. They only knew that the law was available. And when you broke the littlest part of the law, you broke the whole law. And the whole law being broken demanded death. So we criticize them for saying here in verse 16, they persecuted him, they sought to slay him because he had done these things on the Sabbath day. He broke the law. And because they hadn't realized who Jesus was yet, they hadn't been revealed that Jesus was actually God in the flesh, bringing in a new aspect of grace that will, super, will supersede the law because the law, the Bible says, is a taskmaster and it was designed to bring us to Christ. Okay? So in all actuality, what Jesus is doing here, when we now have the whole of Scripture, I look back and Jesus, in that veiled speech aspect, in that hidden language aspect, the undercover boss aspect, he is telling us, I am he. I am. I'm God. Without saying I'm God. Why? Because he's working and fulfilling the law as he was acting. Okay? The law was designed to bring us to Christ. This man was brought to Christ and Christ took care of it. And Christ didn't just take care of his physical healing. When he comes back and sees him, he says, sin no more. He's releasing the sin from that man as well, which really ticked the religious leaders off. Does that make sense? You see what I'm saying? And, and so without out and out saying to those that were there, I'm God, he's really saying I'm God. And those that caught the revelation of who he was, was drawn to him 
and became followers of him. And we see the multitudes go around because there's something about Jesus that they're seeing and they're experiencing that's bigger than what they, than just another rabbi that's teaching. Um, there's a couple of things here in your notes that, that the Orthodox Jew would have grabbed a hold of. In verse number 17, Jesus answered him, My father worketh hitherto, and I work. Therefore the Jews sought the more to kill him, because not only had he broken the Sabbath, but he also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. And uh, now, by him saying, God, God didn't stop working on the Sabbath, and neither am I. What Jesus is really saying is he's giving us another picture that he is... God manifest in the flesh. And, uh, and it's the reason why you're, you're getting that father-son kind of relationship there. It's deity. That word father is P-A-T-E-R, pater. It's where we get paternal from. Okay? It means, not only does it mean necessarily a father, it means an originator. Okay? In the Greek. If you look up that word in the Greek, it will come out as originator first. And uh, so the originator, deity, is always at work and Jesus is saying since I'm deity I'm also going to work my father works I work I do the things of my father I do what my father tells me is that a, is that a submissive language of two different people no that's his humanity saying I'm going to do what my deity tells me to do okay which is is really amazing and it's the reason why the Jews sought to kill him. If the Jews just looked at him as one aspect of a trinity or one aspect of a multiple council of gods, they would not have, they got upset because he was making himself equal with God. In other words, he was making himself God. And think about it. We, again, we criticize these people, but they, they, they don't really have a clue, okay? Here's this carpenter's son from Nazareth declaring himself basically to be God, and the Bible, they know the law well enough to know this, that, that you shall have no other God before you, and the whole Old Testament, I alone am God, and now here's this man that was a carpenter's son in Nazareth, born in Bethlehem, now basically saying, listen, I'm God, I don't know if I would have bowed down and worshipped him. It's, it's, and so, you know, we, we get so judgmental, I guess, with some of these things. But you think about it in present day, if we didn't know the after story, if we didn't have hindsight to what actually took place, if John Doe from off the street walked in today and looked at us and said, you know, my father works so mild that I, I am he. <laughs> Okay, he that's speaking unto you, I'm he. Okay, are you really saying that? Would we be that quick to accept him? Okay, so we give them a hard time. But what I draw from this is that these religious leaders are recognizing what Jesus is claiming. And because now I have the rest of the story, Jesus' claims are accurate. 
So now I have full confidence and faith in trusting that Jesus is God manifest in the flesh that went to Calvary for me, that rose again for me, that ascended, that has given me a spirit that is leading and guiding me. Why? Because if it would have been anybody else, it wouldn't have sent these people crazy. But they were recognizing what Jesus was claiming. Now, they didn't agree with it. They wanted to kill him. But we're seeing the claim that Jesus is God in the flesh right out in the open by the response of the people of that day. That gives me hope. That gives me a sure confidence that in understanding who Jesus is today, that gives me revelation. Okay? Because there's the religious leaders that knew the law backwards and forwards they were getting on Christ. They were wanting to kill Christ because of his claims. Now, we get judgmental looking at said, well, why couldn't you see that he was God? Okay? But we didn't live in that day. Right, right. But what I'm saying is, and a lot of people don't recognize him now. And, and, and yet, you know, uh, to me, there's even more to see now than there was then. You see, some of this, some of the problem of today and the criticism that we place on the people of that day is we've seen too many movies about Jesus. Okay? Because we see in the movies about Jesus, all of the disciples and the ladies and the people around are all wearing drab, boring clothes, and then Jesus is wearing the brightest white gown with a nice blue sash. Well, that, 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 that didn't happen. He wore the same things the others wore. You couldn't differentiate them just by sight. You know, and, and so we get this understanding and we criticize the Pharisees and the Sadducees and, and all of the unbelievers that didn't receive him. But we need to be careful because how many times have we sat in the presence of God and God begins to move and God does something and God does something through somebody that we saw them do something different earlier in the week that didn't measure up to their Christianity and God used them in that Sunday service and we don't receive what God has because we didn't recognize God in that person or using that person. That happens all the time. Okay? And so it's very important that we get confident enough to understand that Jesus is revealing himself in all different ways in Scripture and when we read the things even those that crucified him. Can I just tell you, we, we criticize Herod for, for, you know, beating him and sending him back to Pilate. We criticize Herod, but Herod recognized that his claims to becoming king were real. We criticize Pilate because Pilate was weak-minded and, and, and gave him over. He washed his hands of him. But he even said, I find no fault in this man. So even in the ridicule and the criticism, if you really read scripture with an eye of revelation to who Jesus is, all of these people are revealing who Jesus was. Here's the reason why there was no fault in Jesus, because there was no fault in Jesus. He was the pure sacrifice proclaimed by a pagan leader that he was the spotless lamb. How do we know that Jesus was the perfect lamb on the cross? Because pagan leader Pilate said there's no fault in him. Think of that. 
You know, so we, we read scripture and we criticize these different people. Well, Jesus or God is using these to reveal himself to us, to let us know, hey, the, the Roman centurion, truly this man is the son of God. The one that just crucified him. He's the son of God. So we see the revealing of Christ as God manifests in the flesh all through the book of John. And John takes this passage of a healing. We get lost in the miracle. Now the miracle is powerful. The miracle is amazing. 38 years and not having the opportunity to stand and walk. And all, but, but John takes this healing and he brings John chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4 back into it by this discourse between the Jewish leaders complaining about the Sabbath and they're complaining about the Sabbath and then Jesus turns it on them and, and John in his writing turns it around and says, but here's what Jesus was really saying. Forget the miracle. I am going to even work on the Sabbath. And the Jews only allowed one person to work on the Sabbath, and that was God. Does that make sense? You see what I'm saying? So it's a, again, it's the peeling back of who Jesus is. And it's what makes the book of John, to me, the most powerful book that I get into. Because each chapter, we're just peeling back one more way that John is revealing Christ. So if you really read John and dig into the depths like we're doing by the end of John, you can't help but to realize who Jesus Christ is. And when you realize who Jesus Christ is, that's who you want to be with, right? Um, verses 19 to 29, we'll just, we'll break this down a little bit. In your notes here, you've got those there. Um, I, I will say this, the claiming him to be the son of man was doing nothing less than saying that he was indeed the Messiah. And the reason is, is because, uh, turn back to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7. I want to tie this together. The Jews would have recognized this when he, when he says this. I'm just going to read verses 13 to 14, but again, go back and read Daniel chapter 7 up to like verse 14. In verse 13, he says, I saw in the night visions, behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days, and, and they brought him near before him, and there was given him dominion and glory and kingdom that all the people, nations, languages should serve him, which, again, that hasn't happened. That's every knee shall bow. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. Okay, that is a prophetic uh, to the ultimate leader of Israel. Jesus, okay, the Son of Man. So when, when Jesus, in, in verse 19 and 20 here, Jesus said unto them, Verily I say, the Son of Man can do nothing, or the Son can do nothing of himself but that what he seeth the Father doeth. For the, the things that he doeth, these also do the Son likewise. So he's claiming himself to be the Son. And then if you read down here um, in verse number 27, he hath given him authority to execute judgment also because he is the son of man. Okay, that claim right there of being the son of man is Jesus basically letting the Jews know, hey, go back to Daniel. All dominion and glory is going to be the son of man's like it is. And now here I am. Okay, so we have to understand that 
the people of the day recognize things that we may not recognize. So in this passage, um, I want you to look at a couple of things here. Uh, verse 20, for the Father loveth the Son. Remember I said we were talking about this veiled speech, this veiled language. Okay, so I'm, gonna, I'm just going to take the term out a little bit. So deity loves his humanity and showeth him all things that himself doeth. And he will show greater works than these that you may marvel. For as deity raised up the dead and quickeneth them, even so the Son quickeneth them who he will. In other words, deity was going to give his humanity the ability to raise from the dead. Can you say Lazarus? Okay. And ultimately, can you say us? Because the trump of God will sound, the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together in the air, and so shall we be with the Lord. And then in verse 22, For the Father judgeth no man, but he hath committed all judgment unto the Son. Okay? Again, this is, this is deep. Jesus is really laying it out for these leaders. Because in the Jewish mindset, the only one that could ever judge was God. And Jesus is saying, God has given me the ability to judge you. And we wonder why they didn't receive him. <laughs> okay? <clears throat> that all men should honor the Son even as they honor the Father. Now, if Jesus was not God manifest in the flesh, what is he doing with that statement? That all should honor the Son even as they honor the Father. If that's not the same being, if that's not the same person, if that's not God manifest in the flesh, what is Jesus doing by saying that? Think Jewish. Exodus chapter 20. Thou shalt have no other gods before me, and him only shalt thou worship. So if Jesus isn't God manifest in the flesh, he is commanding men to break the law and go against everything we know about the word of God. Okay, and what he's also saying is, if you worship me, you're worshiping God. If you give the same honor to him and the same honor to me, he that honoreth not the Son, honoreth not the Father with which hath sent him. Okay, there again, if it is co-equal partners in eternity, which is what the Trinitarian doctrine says, uh, how can one be sent and one not be sent? Okay. So what was sent was not another person. What was sent was the humanity that he became. It was humanity that came into the world at Bethlehem. And now in, Jesus is out now saying, if you don't honor the, the, the humanity aspect of God, you're dishonoring the deity aspect of God. You can't dishonor one and not the other because it's not two different people. It's one person manifest together, incarnated, that it's, it's, that's the word that I've never been able to get away from when I talk to people that, that teach that there's multiple persons in the Godhead is the concept of incarnation. That means that one third of God became fused with humanity. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says all of God was in Christ, according to Colossians 2. 
And, and so Jesus is again, is really, which this again, the, one of the greatest doctrines or one of the greatest revelations is the mighty God in Christ. The concept that the great creator became like me so that I would have the opportunity to dwell with him forever. That's amazing to me. That's the, that transcends all of the other doctrines of the Bible, that the great God of all glory loved me enough to become like me so that I could get back to spending eternity with him. All the other things just kind of fall in place. It's, it's all the pathway to get to that. But that's the ultimate message. And John is over and over doing this. Verse 24, verily, verily, or truly, truly. In other words, listen, I'm trying to tell you something important. I say unto you, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death into life. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God and they that hear shall live. For as the Father hath life in himself, so hath he given to the Son to have life in himself. And have given him authority to execute judgment also because he is the son of man, or he's the Messiah. He's the sent one. That's what son of man refers to based on Daniel chapter 7. So let me just break this down a little bit. And uh, you can see here what John is really trying to say. The father and deity has life in himself. Didn't start, didn't end. He's life. Okay. God's always been never has he started and never will he end okay and notice what it says then it says he's given the son to have life he's given that humanity to have life can i just tell you that what that tells me is that humanity started somewhere because deity gave him life and now it's in himself well how's it in himself because god's in him Okay, that lets me know, and that goes to the concept when we read the term, he's the only begotten of the Father, full of grace. He's, this is my begotten, only begotten son. The, that humanity of God, the flesh of God, started at a certain point in time, which was Bethlehem. Okay? But deity never stopped. Never started, never stopped. Always was, always is. And, and so those that are in uh, the Trinitarian nature, they can't, they think, or have to be able to explain how one third of God dies at Calvary. Because they'll, they'll criticize me of saying, well, you're talking about two natures, human and deity. And, and that's true, but it's not all of deity and all of humanity. And so when I ask them, well, who died on Calvary? They say, well, his humanity, but his deity was alive. Well, I no, that's, it can't be one or the other. Is it just one third of deity stay alive or what, you know? It was all of deity. And what made Jesus say, uh, Lama, Lama, Sabachthani, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Because he was feeling all of sin on his shoulders as a man. He was feeling what sin does with us. And when we have sin on us, we feel distant from God. He felt the separation between deity and humanity on Calvary. Why? Because he was taking it all for us to bring us back to him. Again, he claims that he has been given the authority to execute judgment. So verse 28, marvel not at this, for the hour is coming in which all things 
All that are in the graves shall hear his voice and shall come forth. Now, what voice are they talking about? The voice of Jesus, the son of man. Okay, Lazarus was a precursor. So when the end time comes and the dead in Christ rise first, he would try to lie me. And that, that's Jesus speaking. That's Jesus is going to call us home. And when we get to heaven, we're going to see Jesus. And we're going to be like him according to 1 John 3, 2, because we're going to see him as he is. Um, there's another passage in scripture that we'll get to probably towards the end of the book. But the Bible says that he led the captivity captive. He led captivity captive. Okay. Where was the captive or the captivity that was in hell? He had, it was in the death. It was in Hades. It was Old Testament show. Okay. And so when Jesus died, the Bible says he descended to the deep and he called those from hell, if you will, or show and took him captive to paradise. That's why he told the thief on the cross, not that you're going to be in show, not that you're going to be in hell, you're going to be in paradise with me today. Okay, because Jesus was getting ready to unlock the, the, the keys to death, hell, and the grave. Okay, in the Old Testament, uh, just so I can wrap that up, in the Old Testament, when anybody died, they all went to Hades. Okay, they all went to hell. Uh, the Hebrew word is Sheol, S-H-E-O-L. Okay, that place was divided into two places. It was Abraham's bosom, which was a place of comfort, and then it was a place of torment. We see that in the, in the conversation that Jesus reveals between Lazarus, who's in the place of torment, and says, just let, or he, the, the rich man says, just let Lazarus, the beggar, just drop one drop of water on my tongue, and, and there, there's no, you, you can't cross the chasm, okay? So everybody went to hell, so to speak, okay? They went to show Abraham's bosom. Well, when Jesus went to the depths, he took the captivity captive. He took them with him. And those souls that were in Shoal are now in paradise with him. And so what we have to understand is we've used terminology that has caused some confusion. When we die today, we don't go to heaven. Because heaven isn't there yet. We go to paradise. We go to the presence of the Lord. To be absent from the bodies, to be present with Christ. If we read the end time scripture, you'll see the new Jerusalem, that heaven. It'll say it's coming down from out of heaven and it takes up its new place on the new earth and there's comings and goings, okay? So we say, well, he passed away. He's walking on streets of gold. That hasn't happened yet. We don't know really what paradise is like. There's no picture in scripture of what We just know that that's where Jesus is. And if Jesus is there, that's good enough. <laughs> Okay, does that make sense? But we have taken this concept and we thought, you know, he's automatically, and so then when things don't line up like we think we've listened and heard all of our lives, that we get confused, okay? The Bible never tells us that when we die, we're gonna go to heaven. It says when we die, we're gonna go into the presence of Christ, okay? And, and, and so what that does for us is that lets us know there's coming a day the Bible says in Thessalonians that the dead in Christ shall rise first. Okay? And then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Okay? That Lord is Jesus. So he's going to speak, according to even here, he's going to speak. 
and the voices are that, that the voice that they're going to hear in the graves. Those are in the grave. Those that are the bodies that are dead. They're going to hear the voice, just like Lazarus heard the voice of Christ, and they're going to rise. And then we, which are alive and remain, shall be caught up together with them. Okay, that's still the voice of God because it's the voice of Jesus, who's God manifest in the flesh. Is that, do you understand where I'm coming from here? And so here again, there's more scripture, there's more passage here revealing Jesus. There's, there's, there's no, it's, it's, the whole, it's the whole reason why he says in John 17, 3, that this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God in Jesus Christ who now has sent. Okay, let me drop down. To verse 39 and then we'll come to a close verse 39 you can look at your other notes at another time as well but verse 39 search the scriptures for in them you think you have eternal life and they are they which testify of me and you will not come to me that you might have life um, I receive not honor from men but I know you that you have not the love of God in you. I am come in my Father's name, and you receive me not. If another shall come in his own name, him you will receive. How can you believe which receive honor one of another, and seek not the honor that cometh from God only? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one that accuseth you, even Moses, in whom you trust. For you had believed Moses, uh, you would have believed me, for he wrote of me. But you believe not his writings. How shall you believe my words? Okay. Uh, the scriptures here are referring really to the law, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. And Moses is writing and revealing, if you will, leading up to Christ, even though Moses didn't know what he was doing. Okay? Moses did. I don't believe Moses knew what Christ was going to be, but the Bible says that the law was a schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ. We are revealed or the law is revealed and fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Well, how is that? I'll tell you how it is. It's because Jesus, his humanity, is the fulfillment of the penalty of the broken law. It's the answer to the law. So what does law do? It do what? It judges. It reveals that we're guilty, okay? And so Moses, what, what he's saying here is Moses is writing about me because it's revealing your guilt. But in the midst of all of the guilt, if you read the Torah, if you read the law that Moses penned, there's always ways of escape. There's the blood on the doorpost. There's, there's the sacrifice in the temple or the tabernacle. All of the things that, that you read about, there's always the, the, the scapegoat, if you will, the Old Testament scapegoat. All of those things are patterns Revealing how to overcome the law. And the way to overcome the law is to have Jesus. And so Jesus here is writing, I am the fulfillment of, if, if you believe Moses, you're going to believe me because Moses was writing about me. Moses was, that scapegoat that you read about, that's me. The law that you read, the, the, the judgment that you read, that's ultimately me. And I'm going to judge your sins. See, we think, we get this mentality that Jesus went to the cross and he took our judgment away from us. Well, that's right. He took it away from us, but he took it himself. Okay? The judgment, our, our sins have been judged. Us breaking the law, there has been a penalty paid. 
It just wasn't paid by us. Okay? And, and so when Jesus here is saying, you know, if Moses was wrote the thing that brings you to the place of judgment and you have received judgment, I've been judged. I was found guilty. I just never paid the penalty for it. Jesus did. Does that make sense? Um, I, I want to finish tonight in verse 39. Search the scriptures. For in them you think you have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. There's no greater scripture than that one revealing the purpose of John's writings. He's telling us, search all of the scriptures because you think that that's where you're going to get eternal life, but that's not where you're going to get eternal life because what this really, the scriptures are, they're testifying of Jesus. And your eternal life is going to come back to Jesus. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And, and there again, John, one more time, wraps up the revelation of Jesus to us. And... Uh, there, there's no writer in scripture that spends more time trying to introduce us to Jesus. But for so long, we get tied up reading the stories about Jesus and we fail to date between the lines of what John is trying to tell us about Jesus. The miracle in this chapter five is the small part of what John, John John is using this great miracle, but how many times have you heard messages about the miracle instead of about the revelation that happens because of the miracle? And John is now saying here in verse 39, he's wrapping it up. You, you look through all of this and you think you're finding eternal life, okay? In fact, this is the scripture that, that I believe the Lord laid on my heart about and chastising me about trying to figure out how to tell people to get to heaven. Okay? When, I, when I've, I've told the church several times it's not my responsibility to tell somebody how to get to heaven, it's how to get to Jesus. This is the scripture. You think you have eternal life because you know the scripture. You think you have eternal life because you can have a list that you check off and you go down the line. And, but all of those things testify of him. So if I can bypass all of the list and just take them to him, he'll fill in the list for us, right? Does, does that make sense? And, uh, and, and so I believe that the message of John here in the first five chapters is, here's Jesus, what are you gonna do with him? He's, he's God manifest in the flesh. He loves you so much that he was willing to lay down his life for us. He is, he is trying to reveal himself as the great God of all glory. And uh, while we have 2020 hindsight and we have all of scripture to encapsulate that, we can cross-reference what Paul wrote in Colossians and what he wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy and what he wrote in Philippians. And we, we have all the different things. John was, these people that day didn't have that. Uh, he was taking, I'm talking about the people that were living, not, they had the letters later, but in the, in the live setting, that's the reason why the Pharisees had a problem with Jesus. But because they had a problem, that makes me more confident that that's really who he is. Does that make sense? 
Praise God. Any questions or comments? The way that I read, when I say read between the lines, what I do is uh, a five-fold process of interpretation. And it's the word, the individual word, the verse, the chapter, the book, the Bible. Okay, so <clears throat> the English language is very, very poor in comparison to Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek, of which the scriptures were all written. So you can get and misunderstand some of what's going on because the English word does not do the Greek word justice. Uh, my example is always this. The Bible says both Simon Peter repented after he denied the Lord, and it also said Judas Iscariot repented. It uses the same English word of repent or repented. And so why was one saved and one wasn't if they both repented? Well. The reason is because the Greek words is different for that word repent. Okay, one means felt sorry, and one meant felt sorry and desire to change. Well, obviously Judas Iscariot felt sorry, that's why he went committed suicide. And uh, the other one wanted to change, and he did. So we don't read that in English. So that's the first level I always go to is that word. And then when I take the word, then I go to the verse. And what's the verse talking about? Okay, and then for instance, just that same one, when I'm reading it about Judas, obviously the word lines up with what happened in the whole story. Um, then what is the chapter talking about? Because every chapter is kind of a little bit different. And then the book, John's book is all about the revealing of Jesus Christ. So when, I'm, when I recognize that he's revealing Jesus Christ, to, and he does it in two books, John and Revelation, and some in his letters of 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. But, in these two books especially, he's, his purpose is to reveal Jesus as Lord. Okay, well, if that's his main purpose, and I, we've already seen it just in the first five chapters, then as I'm reading, my question is always, okay, Jesus, how are you trying to reveal yourself here? So all of a sudden, reading the story about the miracle and the layman being healed, it's not just reading about the miracle, it's reading, Jesus, what are you trying to, how are you trying to reveal yourself here? I know you can do miracles, you've done them all through scripture. But what are you revealing about yourself here? And so that lets me dig a little bit deeper as far as that's concerned. Um, and then I'm just not afraid to put two and two together as long as I can balance it with Scripture. Um, if I can't balance it with Scripture, it doesn't become a, a principle for me. Um, it's the reason why I'm such a proponent of the oneness of God because... I can go all through scripture and find that I can't go through that and find the answers that I need for a Trinitarian doctrine um, because there's too many questions. Uh, simple questions that can't be answered without mumbo jumbo. You know, if they're co-eternal, co-existent, and co-equal, how can one send the other and one can proceed from the other and who's actually in charge? <laughs> um, just little questions like that, you know. If God the Father was in charge, but he gave all of his power and authority up to the Son, 
Well, then why do we have God the Father now if, we, if he doesn't have any power or authority? Okay? And why does the Holy Ghost get left out in all of it? Because he's never hardly mentioned. You know, and yet, you know, that's the gift that we're supposed to desire. You know, so when I start asking those questions and then I just start looking at things and then I do a lot of reading um, uh, in history and manners and customs. Um, if you, you can just go to Christian Book Distributor or whatever and just hit manners and customs of the Bible. There's several different resources because that lets you know, the, the manners and customs information lets you know what the difference between a cloak and a coat is. That we don't, it doesn't register for us because none of us wear coats and coats and cloaks anymore. But what, what's that mean, you know? Uh, what does it mean in, in this passage of scripture, you know, what does it mean to have the pool uh, troubled? Well, manners and customs will tell you that it was a, that thought process besides what John says, but historically it, it sets it up and, and just different things of that nature. And then you just kind of put two and two together. And what manners and customs really lets me do is it lets me see what, how a Jewish person would have thought in that day. Okay. And I will tell you that <clears throat> I'll just say it was God, but it could be manners and customs, but I almost have felt chastised for being so critical about people of that day. Um, and, I, and I brought that out some tonight because we give them a hard time. Even Thomas, doubting Thomas. Well, how can I blame him? Because <laughs> if I was in the same position, I don't know that I would believe either. You know? Right. And what I give Thomas credit for is as soon as he was sure, he was on his knees.